talking and it don't make sense Tell me what it's all about The truth is stranger the closer you get To the who, what, where, when, how Absurd is the word, guess what I heard Absurd is the word, guess what I heard Guess what I heard Guess what I heard Hey guys, this is Know What I Heard. I'm Jamie, and this episode is about death and mourning. I was joined by Courtney Lane, who is a historian and a Victorian hair artist, and she and I talk about why death is still kind of a taboo topic and why we don't talk about death and our grief as much as we used to, why it's so expensive to bury a body, And she explains how the handling of a body and the grieving process has changed over time and also explains some of the other options besides just cremation and burial whenever it comes to disposing of a body. So I know that this might be kind of an uncomfortable topic, but it's something that we all face. It's something that we all deal with and just wanted to kind of explore it a little bit more. So I hope you guys enjoy. Here we go. Hi there. Hey, how are you doing? <laughs> Good. Thank you so much for doing this. Absolutely. I guess if maybe you just would like want to introduce yourself and explain what you do, because that's fascinating too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I am Courtney Lane, and I'm a Victorian hair artist, historian, and professional weirdo, according to my business card. And uh, what that means is I essentially make artwork and jewelry out of human hair. Often this is to memorialize a deceased loved one. Not always, but uh, very often. There is a very old history behind this art form that is very important to me that I have studied extensively. So I do also have the history component of it where I'm always educating on the history and how it's evolved over time and professional weirdo because a lot of people have just never heard (laughs) hair art yeah (laughs) and on the surface level it's oh you you do what with hair it's it can be a little jarring if you've never been presented with it yeah but then again people make jewelry out of ashes and different things and that's becoming more and more common so I don't know yeah. why hair would be such a foreign concept because that's something you could actually recognize as being the person that you lost absolutely at, at the heart of it cremation jewelry and hair jewelry sort of hold the same sentiment in the sense that this is a part of your loved one that you are keeping and memorializing and really hair art has a much longer history than cremation art so so those Cremation, pearls, pendants, artwork, blown glass, all the, there's a lot you can do with cremated remains these days. Um, It's really sort of the modern version of hair work. Okay, very cool. So I guess, how did you kind of become interested in, I don't want to necessarily say death, but kind of, I guess, and and doing the, the hair art? Yeah, well, I I guess you could say that I have an interest in death. That did start rather young. But the the way it began was I was probably five or six years old, and my grandmother and I uh, traveled to New Orleans to see the above-ground cemeteries. And at that age, it was just something my grandmother wanted to see. She wanted to go on those tours, and she assumed that I wouldn't really know what we were looking at. We'd just be <laughs> on a little field trip. But um, in my eyes, I knew exactly that this was a cemetery, and I immediately could tell, because I, I grew up in South Dakota, so I could immediately tell that this cemetery is very different from the cemeteries <laughs> that I've seen. Right. And the graves were older and some were more intricate and more beautiful. And I just really became enraptured with the way people have memorialized their loved ones throughout history. 
And it, I, I always say that it goes back to that cemetery because my, my eyes were open to the fact that there is a different way and there are different monuments. And that kind of sparked this lifelong interest that all began with memorials. So that's very much where hair art comes in. Because once I was presented with hair art, it's, it just absolutely made sense because it's not only memorializing the loved one, it's a part of them. Right. And it's a beautiful piece of artwork you can display or it's a piece of jewelry you can wear. So it just made all the sense in the world to me. So I, I was kind of curious your thoughts on like how the mourning process and how we handle death has changed over time and why death is just such a taboo topic still yeah well nobody wants to embrace the fact that you're going to die (laughs) and it's not fun and death is scary and anyone who says that they aren't afraid of death is probably lying (laughs) because uh, it's there are a lot of unknowns there are a lot of things that you have reason to be afraid of but I don't think it's healthy to not think about it and not talk about it as with really any fear we have in life I I think facing it in a healthy way is very important and and death is no different and the way that has sort of evolved over time I guess you could say that some of it is inevitable because we are seeing at least in you know, in, in America, in the modern time, we don't see dead bodies very often. And at least for the middle class and up, there are very few out-of-order deaths. So we aren't always burying children as often as we once were. And so in a way, it's sort of normal that we have distanced ourselves from death in that sense. And a lot of that is good. A lot of that is because we've made... You know, we have antibiotics now. In the Victorian era, there were a lot of things that could kill you back then that are probably not going to kill you today. And where it sort of gets into a more, I guess in my opinion, would be an unhealthy realm is when we get so removed from it that we we we, we won't face it. And... The Victorian era is responsible for a lot of that, because one thing the Victorians were very good at was industrializing things, and and that was all facets as well as death. You see, we just began embalming bodies during the Civil War, and in that time, during the Civil War, there was a very good reason for embalming bodies. Soldiers going off to war who would die very far from home probably couldn't be transported back home to their families without being embalmed because it would take days or weeks to get it back if that is all assuming that the body could be identified in the first place. And that is a good reason to embalm a body because I think it is important that the family is able to see their loved ones for the last time and able to process that grief and process that death. But as with, (laughs) I would argue, all industries in the Victorian era, people really took it and ran with it. And over time, getting into the Edwardian era, getting into the 1900s, we started embalming nearly all of our bodies, (laughs) at least specifically in Christian funerals, in secular funerals, in America, in sort of the the first world predominantly white countries especially began embalming all of our bodies. And now it's gotten almost to the point where people almost think they need to embalm a body if they're going to see it again. There's a lot that could be said about it because at the same time, you know, cremation rates are going up. People are getting cremated more often. And there are new sort of death innovations that are, are swirling around these days. A lot of it is is a consumer issue because people don't think about death the same way you think about shopping for a dress. Right. <laughs> Even though in, in many cases, it's it's gotten removed from the family. It's gotten removed from having a cultural ritual around interring a body and it's become a business 
an industry. And it's an industry that as consumers, we are very dumb about because <laughs> we just don't think about it that way. Right. I haven't been around a lot of funeral planning, but it's just like, I just always picture like the funeral guys like behind the scenes, like high fiving because they upsold you to like the fancier casket and got more flowers and you know it's just like when you're handed these brochures being sold all this stuff while you're still trying to grieve and the amount of money that people spend on funerals is mind-boggling to me it is incredibly expensive to die there (laughs) there is no doubt about that and I think people, especially within the last few years, people are really getting more in tune with, you know, do we need to go to this funeral home? Do we need to be embalmed? And and that is a good thing because as consumers, we should be questioning our motives behind things. And there certainly are large corporate funeral homes that once anything gets too big and too corporate and too profit driven, there's going to be unethical activity. And that's where you start to worry about, am I being upsold? Do I need this? Do I not need this? I do think there are very good funeral directors out there who are very ethical. And there are some small funeral homes, but the reality of the situation is there are large uh, corporate entities who are buying small funeral homes and keeping the same name, but it's all under one corporate umbrella. That's actually something that uh, I had to deal with my with in my own personal life. My uh, grandmother died a few years ago, and I was very, very close with my grandmother. And we had a small local funeral home who had taken care of my great-grandmother and my great-grandfather and We knew the family whose name was on the funeral home and had developed a rapport with them. So, of course, when my grandmother learned that she was terminally ill, it was the funeral home she wanted to go to. But we learned that even though it had the same name, the same family name, it had been purchased by a large corporation. And all of the prices had gone up. And that was difficult to find because it still looks like a mom and pop shop on the outside. So it's it's very tricky waters to navigate because is this a small mom and pop shop or or is it owned by a big corporation? And it's it's hard to know the difference. Right. And that leads to a lot of uh panic when shopping because this is actually a little bit funny, but I I shopped around when my grandmother died. <laughs> You don't think of funerals as shopping around, but uh, I actually called each and every funeral home in the city where she died, and I found out if they were still local, if they were owned by a corporation, and I got their price list for absolutely everything. So I was able to see right then and there which ones are still local and which one is the cheapest. And that's something that is is difficult for people to do because you just don't think of doing that with death. You don't think of it as the industry that it is. And yeah, so I, I guess that's my <laughs> my my advice as well as my experience is if if you are thinking of embalming or cremation and you don't have a community or a culture or a religion that's dictating the way you are to be interred to really do your research. And sometimes it can help to do that before the death is right on your doorstep. Um, I actually worked with my grandmother to do this because she knew she was terminally ill and she wanted my advice and she wanted my help in shopping for that. And it was actually a great comfort to her to know that she was going to be in good hands once she died and that we weren't going to be um, exploited on cost and that kind of thing. Yeah, I think it's really important for people to be very clear on what they want, their wishes. Mm-hmm. It's their way. I mean, like, it's a big thing to want to respect the way somebody wants to be remembered. And when you don't know, it makes it really tricky to assume. Absolutely. And, and that's the last thing you want when you are grieving a deceased loved one is to worry about, is this what they wanted? Or to have some sort of uh, family fight about what to do. Because I think everyone has like 
that uncle who says, just throw me in a dumpster. (laughs) (laughs) I I feel like everyone has that family member. And even if they genuinely don't care what happens with their body, I mean, the grieving people you're leaving behind might, and there might still be a fight about it. And that's the last thing you want when you're grieving, because grief is already so heavy (laughs) that it's just one more thing if you don't plan and think ahead. Right. What do you think the the reasoning is behind us trying so hard to make someone look alive after they've passed away? They generally don't look like themselves, and they're trying to make it look like they're alive, like they're just sleeping, and we're kind of relying on a stranger to make them look natural. Often the women, you know, are wearing more makeup than we've probably ever seen them wear. Their hair's just done up. They're dressed in their fanciest outfit and we're just trying to make them look alive, but they're not. And to me, it it can be very creepy. So what, what is our fascination with that? It can feel a little creepy and a little icky because I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. There are I've, I've experienced it myself where there, there's an open casket. They're all, all dressed to the nines, but it's still a dead body. And you know it is still a dead body. And when you're grieving, it, it can be jarring. It, it really can be. And that, that it's not to say that everybody is going to have an issue with it, but I think it's just sort of habit, um, especially when it comes to uh, funeral homes, when you're working with a traditional funeral director, it's sort of habit. It's part of how they were trained. It's part of how society has been trained to, you know, to do this, do the hair, do the makeup, wear, wear a fancy outfit, go, go in a fancy casket. Um, It doesn't necessarily need to be that way, but I do think seeing the body and having time with it is very important and very helpful and can help you sort of begin to process your grief in a healthy way. And this isn't, of course, to say that all cultures do it, but a lot of traditional funeral homes do just by default. And there are are cultures who are far more community-based. If you um, are at all familiar with Jewish burials, Muslim burials, they very often have a community of of death care volunteers or workers who will very ceremoniously wash the body, dress the body, um, inter the body according to their uh, own beliefs. And I love the fact that it is community-based because in America for, you know, maybe more secular people, even for Christian people, a lot of it is no longer community or family based. We have just outsourced it to businesses. And sure, there may be some things we do need help for a business because most places it's not legal to just cremate your own body. <laughs> so sometimes you do need that funeral professional, but I think it's important to establish um what the family would like to do versus what you need help with. And it all it all comes back to really contemplating and really planning to make sure that it's done respectfully and in the way that feels right to you. So one thing that really kind of confuses me about how we handle and process death is that we put a lot of focus on the the soul or, you know, the, a, a person going to heaven or that they're our guardian angels and that they're with us and that, you know, they've moved on to a better place, which is, is great. Cause that, you know, I know that's how people cope, but then on the other hand, if the focus is on the soul, I don't really understand why so much time and money is spent on preserving the body, you know, embalming them and putting them in a $10,000 casket and having a huge funeral and, um, I, I don't know. It's just it's something that is kind of confusing to me. It can be very confusing. Absolutely. And, you know, I myself am a rather secular person. So when I experience a death, I personally cannot stand it when someone says they're in a better place. <laughs> they're watching over you because those are kind of 
it could be meaningful if that was my belief system. But I imagine if that's one's belief system that they already know that and think that and feel that and being told that over and over uh, by people outside of the family isn't going to make them believe it any more than they already do. And so it's it's again just sort of habit. I think we have very often traded meaningful ritual for habitual platitudes. <laughs> and that can can be very difficult when when someone is grieving because I mean I I know everyone experiences grief a lot differently, but I have I have very little patience for that when I myself <laughs> am grieving. So it seems like there's this big rush to process things after the death of a loved one. Um, you know, oftentimes after they pass away, they the family immediately kind of starts planning the, the funeral and the burial. A lot of times the funeral is just a couple days after they passed away. And then a day or two after that, people are going back to work and just getting back to normal life. So it just seems very rushed. Could you maybe explain how the mourning process has changed? I know, you know, people used to actually spend time with a dead loved one and why maybe today choosing to spend that extra time with that loved one might actually be considered morbid? I think a rush without a reason or really any any end of life decision without a reason behind it can really sort of make you take a step back and say, wait a minute, why why are we doing it this way? That was something that for me was very important that because and don't get me wrong, there is a lot of work to be done when someone does die. We do have a lot of paperwork if you're working with a funeral home. There are a lot of decisions to make, things to sign. So there is a lot of work to do. And that in itself is very, very stressful. But as a grieving person, you don't always really understand that you are in control and you can set a pace and you can slow it down if that's what you need and if that would be meaningful to you. Because if if someone's just pulling you this way, you need to sign this, you need to make this decision, it can be very easy to kind of just be pulled in every direction and and it, it can be difficult to to speak up for yourself and i know for for me when my grandmother died she very specifically did not want anyone outside of the family to see her dead body which i think was a very interesting decision on her part because her parents had the embalming and they had the casket and they had uh, the large funeral where everyone came to see them one final time. That was my grandmother's one thing. I don't want anyone outside of the family to see my body. So she did not want the funeral. And considering that, it's like, all right, we we already know that we aren't going to invite people in, but the family was already there when she died. We were present. And um, in our case, we were in a hospice, a hospice house when she died. So we had a hospice nurse who said, I will call the funeral home whenever you're ready. I told the nurse ahead of time, I'm going to need a little time with her body. So do not call the funeral home until I tell you to. And that was very important to me because as, as a hair artist myself, I wanted to be the one to cut uh, my grandmother's hair. So uh, <laughs> together with, with the whole family, uh, we sat there and we were the ones to move her body. And I was there with my scissors, cutting cutting the locks of hair off. And that in itself was really, really healing. Because even though I, I now have her hair, I can make artwork, I can make jewelry with it, um, which is very meaningful. Having that experience with her body was also very meaningful. Because, of course, it was sad. There were tears but it also gave us some time to have a weird, almost sense of normalcy because as, you know, dead bodies are not easy to work with. <laughs> they are heavy. They are quite literally dead weight. Um, and, and then at a certain point, um, rigor mortis will start to set in and then the body will be even harder to, to move the way you need. So even though there were tears, we had our solemn time together as a family. I held her hand. Um, it almost became 
as morbid as it sounds, it almost became a funny, good memory because I was needing to get help from from my husband and my uncle. And it's like, oh, we got to move her up a little bit. And grandma, why are you like work with us, grandma? So in in a weird way, having that time was very healing because we were able to see it for what it was and we were able to laugh about it a little bit. And we were able to, even though grandma wasn't there anymore, we as a family were there. And I think that's really what mattered. And then on our own time, we had the funeral uh, home come and, and take her. But by that point, I felt like we were in charge and we had the time we needed. And I think that's very important. And it's something you need to know before it happens, because once the death happens, whether you're in a hospice or a hospital or if it's at home, even there can be a very big rush, like get the body out, do what we need to do on to the next thing. And I guess with my work and my own experiences, I want people to know that you can slow it down if that's what you need. Our, our modern society has made things morbid and yeah death can be morbid there can be things about it but it's also a natural process in life and we are all going to die and why do we need to make it this morbid thing and if I want to cut my grandmother's hair because that's healing to me why should that be morbid even though some people think oh Victorian hair art that's a little morbid um, if someone wants to take a photograph of their deceased loved one, why does that have to be morbid? If it helps you heal, if it helps you grieve and it feels right, we shouldn't just blanketly call something morbid. And, and you know, who are we to say that it's weird and creepy if it helps someone, you know? So before, like, our reliance on, on funeral homes to handle the body and before embalming became common practice... If someone passed away at home, what did the the process look like for for the family as far as taking care of and handling the body and kind of that mourning process? It was very often taken care of at home, and it was very often taken care of by the women of the home. You know, women traditionally are put in the role of a caretaker and that is very often the case in life as, as well as in death. And there there are all kinds of Victorian mourning rituals, um, and, and some of them varied regionally and culturally, but it, it was very much clean the body, dress the body. In some way, it is what we still do today, make the body look nice and presentable, but it was very often done in the parlor of the home. And there would be very sort of obvious signs of grief. It wouldn't be uncommon to hang a wreath on the door, hang, hang some black crepe. Um, there was, of course, mourning clothing um, that men and women, but especially the women were expected. If you are mourning and grieving someone, you wear black <laughs> and you wear very elaborate black clothes. And they would invite people into the home to see the body there. There were funeral biscuits um, in Sweden. There were funeral candies that you would sort of just as a custom make to give to mourners if they were coming into the home um, for the, I guess, what would be the modern equivalent of our, our funerals at our funeral homes. So it was in that sense, I think, a lot more intimate, but it was also the after everything was said and done and the body has been buried and was probably not embalmed because as I said, embalming began in the Victorian era. So it was still very new. Maybe some of the upper class people would be starting to get embalmed, but certainly not everybody by this time. And so I think even after the body was buried, there was still more of an outward expression of grief. I have lost someone, therefore I am dressing in black. I am mourning this person. And I think there are good things about that. And I think there are bad things about that. In some cases, it's bad in the sense that, you know, society almost demands and expects that you wear these clothes. And they expect that you wear it for a year or more. And that societal expectation of this is how you grieve 
is not a good thing. I don't think anyone should be told how they should grieve. But I think the fact that it was normal to outwardly express your grief is in some ways very good because a lot of people don't feel like they can do that these days because in in our uh, really fast-paced society, it's it might be, okay, get the funeral over with, but then you're going to be back at work the very next day and you don't get a lot of bereavement time off. And sometimes it's it feels as a griever that you're making other people uncomfortable if you let on that you're still grieving and that you're still sad. So I think some people in that sense present day will more have a tendency to bottle up their grief and not talk about it or express it as openly as you would. So that's why I think a lot of people romanticize the Victorian mourning because they were allowed to express their grief this way, but they were also kind of expected. And that in itself was an industry. There was a whole warehouse dedicated to mourning clothes. (laughs) Um, So that also became an industry. The Victorians were very good at industrializing what was previously small business. That sounds like it. So if we're like discussing death and what people plan to do, um, it's basically, are you going to be buried or do you want to be cremated? Like those are the only two options. So uh, what are some some other options besides those two? Yeah, I, I think it's important for people who don't have a cultural defining way to to go i think it's important for people to know their options and the difficulty with that is that there are new great death innovations but they aren't all legal in all areas so with any of these options it's important to still do your research to know if it's available in your area yet And if it's not available in your area yet, maybe that's something you want to, you know, fight for yourself and and bring up to lawmakers. But there is essentially um, it goes by a couple different names. There's aquamation, which is basically water cremation, where instead of the flames reducing your body down to bone fragments, which are the ashes we get back, they do it with a solution of water and lye. And this is something that is legal in some states. It is offered in some areas, um, but not all of them yet. And some have made the argument that it's actually a more environmentally friendly alternative to cremation. So that's something to keep an eye on as an option. Um, I'm a fan of just being buried naturally. I mean, people since the beginning of time have just been buried in the soil and allowed to decompose as nature has as nature has created. Um, for me, that is really sort of that is the circle of life. To me, it makes sense that this is what's supposed to happen. So I like the idea of natural burial in that sense. We we talk about not wanting to be exploited by the funeral industry and that fear of being exploited by the funeral industry has almost led to another subgenre of the funeral industry where there are some funeral directors doing great work who are maybe specializing in natural burial without embalming and then there are some people who have you ever heard of like the bios urn It went a little viral online for a while where they say um, you can turn into a tree, put your cremated ashes in in a pod to turn into a tree. And that kills me because it's such a romantic idea. It's such a seemingly environmentally friendly idea. But the cremated ashes you get are bone fragments. They are inorganic. They are not going to fertilize a tree. (laughs) So people being sold this romantic idea of I can nourish a tree, that's a beautiful concept, but that's also not scientifically correct. (laughs) And I will fess up to to falling victim to some of these in the past. I did um, absolutely fall in love with a concept uh, several years back of the quote, mushroom suit. There was supposedly a 
a shroud infused with a biomix of mushrooms that were essentially supposed to feed on the body and be a more efficient way of getting the nutrients from your body into the ground. I thought it was such a beautiful idea. I think I told my mother at one point, I was like, I'm going to bury you in a mushroom soup because she's kind of one of the people who says, you know, do do with me what you want. And and um, it's a beautiful, romantic idea. I'm I'm fond of mushrooms. <laughs> I'm no such thing as a mycologist, but I I was convinced that that's what I wanted for myself for a while, only to find out that that also doesn't work. They tried to do scientific testing and it did not work. And that kills me because I loved the idea. But at the end of the day, that was sort of initiated as an art project of will I be able to get mushrooms to eat my own flesh? <laughs> and it, it's clearly there. There's a huge TED talk on it. So that has over a million views easily. And so clearly people are interested in these innovations. People are interested in new ways to dispose of a dead body. So it really has captured the public's imagination, but it kills me when items like this are being sold as something for what they're not. To the best of my knowledge, the best way to actually become a tree or fertilize plant life is something that I think think is only legal in Washington state right now. It may be legal in a couple other areas, but um, essentially human composting. It might sound weird and freaky, but it's, it's actually quite an interesting process where the body will be sort of buried in a chamber with a very specific mix of wood chips that will allow the natural decomposition to happen, but with added heat and a very specific environment, it's supposed to speed up the decomposition process and essentially turn the body into what is a very fertile soil. So the idea is you get the soil back and you can use it to plant a garden. You can use it to plant a tree. And that is, to the best of my knowledge, a, a very, um, scientifically proven process <laughs> from what I understand, but these things are always changing. So I think it's very important to not just be sold on a single idea and not do your research as a consumer on, on what some of these things uh, are and what they do. What about body donation? I'm, I'm very fascinated by the body farm. <laughs> so oh, yes. that's, that's always on my radar is like, you know, an option for me. But it also kind of weirds me out to know that medical students could be like messing with me. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, that's a valid concern. I both love and hate body donation. And let me tell you why. <laughs> Because I personally, if I knew I could donate my body and it would actually be used uh, by medical students and that I would be their cadaver for the year where they could explore the body and learn the necessary things to become a doctor and progress medicine and science, I would be like, yes, take me, take my body and do this. But there are a couple of caveats to that. If someone is interested in body donation, you kind of need to have a plan B because depending on the circumstances of your death, your body might not be wanted for the kind of uh, scientific research. And so you, you might have all of the best intentions, but if your body doesn't qualify, it doesn't qualify. So plan B is always good, but you also kind of need to go in with the mindset of, I'm going to trust the process and the scientists and my body is going to do good. Or you have to be someone who really just doesn't care. <laughs> Use my body however you need. Some people are like that and all the power to them. But my personal concern about full cadaver donation is that, yes, maybe you can go to medical research. Maybe you can go to a body farm where people will study the decomposition, but maybe you're going to be blown up with a bomb to test military devices. And maybe you're going to be tested on what does this weapon do to a body? 
And if you're not morally and ethically okay with that, then maybe you need to (laughs) think of a different option or at least know that that's a possibility. And it's kind of messy and muddy to get into, but there, there are things like that that can happen. And there have been situations of people who have said, I don't want to be tested on military explosives only to find out that that was what happened to their body, even though they thought they were going to have their brain dissected for Alzheimer's research. So you can't be precious about what's going to happen with your body if you go the donation route. Now, there are some kind of middle grounds that you'll have a pretty good idea of what's going to happen with not necessarily a full body, but parts of your body that you can donate And this can also be good for people whose bodies might not qualify. So um, to use my grandmother as another example, (laughs) um, she did die of pancreatic cancer. So by the time she died, lots and lots of internal damage. And she would not have qualified for a full body donation, even if that's something she wanted. Now, what she did do was find out that she could donate her eyes to the eye bank for sight restoration. And she said, well, yeah, absolutely. If there are any parts of me that can help someone, that would be great. So that's something that we were able to facilitate with the funeral home because they said, yeah, we will work with the Lion's Eye Bank and we will make sure that that's harvested. And then they kind of asked us, you know, if we find any any large swatches of her skin that we think could use for for donation, are we allowed to take that? And we said, yeah, absolutely, of course. And uh, sometimes long bone can be donated, so the bones in the arms or the legs. And a lot of that is all things that you can facilitate with funeral homes, because a lot of funeral homes will work with those sort of individual body part donation system. So I think that's a lovely thing because even though she wasn't able to, nor was she really interested in donating her whole body, there were parts that were usable. And so it it really, (laughs) it comes down to a lot of research because even if donating your whole cadaver does sound like something that's right for you, you need to find out where you can donate and what paperwork you need to sign to uh, sort of broker that transaction. So it all comes down to meditating. What what do you want your death to look like? <laughs> right. So if I had wishes to be buried in a little wooden box on my farm, is that an option? Like, do you know what the laws are? Because you'd mentioned the natural burial. Like, like what are the rules behind that? You know, know, I can't give a blanket answer to this because every place is a little bit different. I will say with the natural burial that you are somewhat at the hands of other businesses because cemeteries are a business. Some cemeteries have a green burial section where you can be buried there without embalming, but some cemeteries just say we only take embalmed bodies. And technically, as a business, that is their right to do. So even if you want a cemetery with a green burial, you kind of have to find out which cemetery will take you. So that's unfortunately more research. But um, as far as being buried on your land, that's a trickier one. Because the answer is just maybe, <laughs> you know, it, it could be that a state law will forbid it. It could be that you're getting into specific municipalities. Uh, what is the city law? Is there a county ordinance? And I would hazard to guess that if you are in a more rural area, it is probably more likely that you could get away with that. But it's certainly not just legal anywhere and everywhere to do that. Is it impossible? No, but you are definitely going to need to look into laws if you do want to be buried on your own land. Yeah, I mean, it's just like if you if somebody wanted a Viking burial on Lake of the Ozarks or whatever, why can't they? You know what I mean? But there's all these. 
Well, and, you know, there, there are a lot of restrictions and uh, every state is a little bit different. So you kind of just have to know your area. I mean, in most places, it's technically illegal to just scatter cremated remains in a public area. So I, I've known some funeral directors who are just like, I can't tell you to go scatter the remains in, you know, mom's favorite place. I professionally can't tell you to do that. But if you did do that, definitely don't tell me, wink, wink, that you're doing it. So it's there are some weird laws and some of them don't really make sense to me. Some of them seem to be more protective of the industry than the individual family. So um, there is a lot of due diligence that we do, again, unfortunately, need to make as consumers because, again, it going back to the expense, it is really, really expensive to do a lot of these services and not everybody can afford it. And it, it kind of begs the question, if we are all going to die and we all know that we're going to die, why is it so expensive? Why isn't there at least, you know a more community funded or government funded or something option that isn't going to completely break the bank or put people into debt just to bury their dead. Right. So I think most people my age have grandparents or even parents that have burial plots that they've had for years and it was kind of like you got married and then you figured out where you wanted to be buried. You got your burial plot and plan to be buried side by side so that's something that's just not even really heard of these days or very rare at least so are there other trends that you're aware of that you know people are kind of moving away from yeah well definitely cremation rates are up part of that is that it is cheaper than burial part of it is that you know, people aren't staying at home in the same town as often. People are just in life moving more often. So it it doesn't make sense if I have a burial plot in my hometown, but I moved three states over. So I think just that alone is enough to kind of break that habit. But um, there are people who say, you know, I don't really want my body to be embalmed. But if the cemetery you have a family plot in says you have to be embalmed to be here, then you got to think of another option. And cemeteries can can be a little odd in that regard, because uh, my grandmother did have a burial plot that she purchased when my great grandmother died because she wanted to be buried next to them. So she said, I'm just going to buy this. I'm going to have it there. But then by the end of her life, she said, you know, I don't actually want to be buried there. So now I have this burial plot that was meant to be for my grandmother. And I thought, well, can I can I sell this? Can I sell it back to the cemetery? And basically what I was told, my only options are either I can gift it to someone, but I cannot legally sell it to someone. Don't know why that is, but I cannot legally sell this plot. And the cemetery said, you can donate it back to us. So I can either give it to the cemetery or give it to someone else, but legally money cannot change hands, even though I have this deed to this plot that no one in my family is going to use. So <laughs> that that's kind of an interesting thing. And I think the idea of Purchasing your plot ahead of time, I think the heart's in the right place because that is in some way planning for the death. And maybe you think, I don't want my family to have to buy this when I die, so I'll buy it for myself. But there are a lot of weird rules and regulations and laws that get into that. So you have to really, really know that it's what you want and that you're not going to move and that you're not going to change your mind in order to take those steps. Truthfully, some of the time, if you, if anything's even remotely up in the air, maybe just opening a savings account for my death might be a better option unless it's super set in stone and not going to change. Right. Yeah. There's also divorce, which could complicate things if you have. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So many things can, can change. I'm sure that's complicated a few burial plots. Um, so just out of curiosity, what are your wishes? Yeah, I I would love a natural burial. 
I would love to just be buried in the soil. I would love for all of my hair to be collected, to be used as memorials for my friends and family and all the loved ones I leave behind. And that's basically that. I have contemplated going so far as to picking out the cemetery that I would be buried in, but that's a little too up in the air right now because I currently live in the Kansas City area and I love it here. To my knowledge, I'm not going to move anytime soon, but if I am lucky enough to grow to be a very old lady, I don't know for a fact that I'm still going to be here. So, um, and I, I would absolutely um, gladly do uh, sort of an eye donation, a skin donation, a long bone donation. I haven't yet found a full cadaver donation that I have been 100% comfortable with, but it's definitely, it's an idea I've flirted with. And I'm not going to say that I will never do that because who knows, maybe laws and regulations will change and someday there will be an option to say, I will donate my body under these circumstances alone. So it, it kind of depends on that. But I know that I want that memorial left for my loved ones because it's not as common to just have a family plot to go visit. So I think there is merit to having a grave to visit if you're buried. But if you have a part of your loved one, whether it be cremated ashes, whether it be hair, that's easier to travel. It's easier to leave because you still have that sort of monument to that person that can come with you wherever you go. Right. Well, I think that was all my questions. You know, I think we covered a lot of things, a lot of very important things. Um, I think really what the common thread in all of these discussions were is take a little thought and do a lot of research. <laughs> So what's your, your website and, you know, where can people find you on social media? Well, my website is neverforgottencl.com, CL for Courtney Lane. Um, most of my social media handles, Instagram, neverforgottencl as well. Um, if you are interested in more the history of hair art and hair work, um, with maybe a little bit of morning customs thrown in, um, I am on YouTube as Hair and Now. I like it. I really appreciate you doing this. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Have a great night. <laughs> All right. You too. Bye. Courtney, thank you so much for joining me on this episode and thank you guys so much for listening. I really, really appreciate your support. And if you are liking Know What I Heard and want to support the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. Tell your friends, share the love. That's the only way we're going to be able to keep doing the podcast. If you haven't already liked the Facebook page, please go to Know What I Heard Podcast. Follow us on Instagram. If you have any show ideas, comments, questions, anything at all, send me an email at knowwhatiheard at gmail.com. And until next time, hey, know what I heard? <laughs>